Welcome to episode 27 of the Cowcast Listener Q&A. Alright, this episode is going to be a little bit of a double up. It's going to be a listener Q&A, as well as uh, the first part will be an Ask the Retailer answer for the Comics for Fun and Profit podcast. So uh, James and I are good friends with Kyle and Drew over at Comics for Fun and Profit, and sometimes they'll uh, refer questions over to us that they get just to see what our input is. That's exactly what we have today. The question comes from a listener of theirs named Julie. Julie is a speculator and an online retailer, and her question, or I guess statement, is that we all use eBay as our primary, if not only, platform for selling. On eBay, there are always people selling comics insanely cheap. I think that they're just taking a loss on these to free up capital. Is this phenomena a classic oversupply? Um, she then goes on to say things like, so the totality of all comic sellers on eBay are fighting for fewer customers than the average LCS. How does this make any sense? Is the worldwide demand outside of people with an LCS or online retailer only so large, only so many people? And is this why prices are so low? Things don't seem to sell as frequently all the time. Um, any insight is welcome and is always great job. So they sent this over to us because, uh, James, we sell both in the store and on eBay, correct? Correct. And we've done fairly successfully in the store and on eBay. Mm-hmm. So I think what this question is really asking for us is there are so many comics you can get on eBay dirt cheap, and why is that? Uh, so do you want to go ahead and give your initial thoughts? I know you did some looking and research outside of what we normally would do on eBay, um, You know things just from the marketplace in general. So do you have some initial feedback you want to kick it off with? Yeah, I can. Um, the but I wanna, I wanna just jump into the paragraph that she uh, of the question that she asked, which was, uh, and this is I thought this is a good example to sum it up. She said, "Secret Empire Zero from April numbers show approximately one hundred and sixty-two thousand units ordered, um, and that those numbers are from Comics Pro. If that's accurate, there are roughly three thousand uh, local comic shops. I think it's more than that." Um, that means on average, each store ordered 54 comics. Also, let's assume that 20% of the inventory is still on shelves, which is probably, I would say, um, probably under. There's probably more than that sitting on shelves. So on average, each local comic shop sold 44,000 copies of Secret Empire Zero. Uh, she goes on to say, compare this to eBay between March 22nd, and April 31st, only 30 copies of Secret War Zero. Um, I, assuming she meant Secret Empire. Um, I think that would make sense. Were purchased on eBay. So she's saying that the totality of all comic sellers on eBay are fighting for fewer customers than an average local comic store. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I think eBay attracts a, a diff, completely different type of customer. If you're a local comic shop, you have people that generally like to come. We've talked about this quite a bit uh, in the past, but I think you have people that want to come in and get the comic store experience. And even if you have people that are maybe not the most social when they come in, they might just be the type that come in and listen to the conversations that are in there. They want to come in and look around and get the comic shop experience. I think if you're buying comics on eBay, it's a little bit different. I think that tends to be a lot of... Um, the people that I know that buy comics on eBay are not the people that are buying weekly books. They're buying a book that they missed. They're buying a book that maybe they're they're putting a run together and they're missing an issue. So they're after that. They can't find it anywhere else. Uh, or it's usually after, like if you're buying an event book on eBay, let's say that you're buying Secret Empire on eBay. That's a great example. It's going to take now. Now that they've extended it another issue, you're going to have to go until issue zero through eleven or zero through ten, and now this new Omega or whatever finale issue they've announced for it is. Most people, if they're following an event, they don't want to wait that long. They don't want to wait twelve issues in to know what happened and try to avoid spoilers. Uh, I don't. 
so I don't really worry about it as a store. And I don't think that there are less, I think if you're an eBay seller, I don't think that there are less people that you're trying to sell to. I think it's just a different kind of person. I think if you're selling new product on eBay, you're going to do best with something like variant covers or things that are going to cater more towards a collector than a weekly reader. Um, I don't, so I don't, I guess if you look in general on, I would, I would bet that if you look at a book that's two years old, you're going to find far more copies sold on eBay than you will if you combine the sales of that book out of all the comic stores that you could aggregate data from. Because eBay is geared towards people that are hunting collectibles or filling in issues and runs. You know what I mean? Is this making sense to you? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So I don't, I don't, I just don't think that there are, I wouldn't say that the, the way that the question is phrased, that there are less people that are being catered to on eBay than there are in a traditional comic shop. I think it's just a different kind of buyer. Right. Right. Uh, and one thing we've talked about in the past is that when we're pricing things like back issues or high dollar variants, we tend to use eBay as much as it's reasonable for the pricing because eBay is a global marketplace um, and it hits a wider customer base. So I think you hit the nail on the head. A lot of the, the modern stuff, what you're going to see are things like variants uh, or if there's a book that for whatever reason caught retailers by surprise and was maybe a, a lower print run because the FOC numbers were down. Um, I think a good example of that would be issues two, three, and four of the vision, mm-hmm. right? Those, uh, those for a while commanded an extra dollar or two. It's, it's not blowing anything out of the water, but those are a bit higher because there was a lower print run, uh, because the vision hadn't yet built up its, its big fever pitch. Um, and, and then obviously the latest thing we've had with Batman 24, that one had a good size print run on it, but it sold through, uh, and people wanted more. So there's several things that can make prices go up, but uh, but but by and large, now, Batman 24 though that I don't think that was that's kind of an outlier, and this it's a good it's a good example to bring up. It's a a book that sold out that jumped in price the week that it came out, but it's it's definitely an outlier, and it falls more into the category of people trying to hunt down a collectible. Um, I think that the fact that the second and third printings of Batman 24 are not performing anywhere like the first printing was shows that that interest in Batman, I think that the best terminology for, um, for eBay sales of new product is sense of urgency. And if people are given that sense of urgency that they've got to have this book because there, there are not enough out there. It's a, you know, maybe a false sense of uh, supply. Um, they're going to go for it. And then the, the fear of missing out, creates uh, kind of a fever in people. And that's what is driving Batman 24 right now. But as we see the the following prints go for cover or even below cover, um, I don't think that there's, I think Batman 24 is a good example and a bad example. Yeah, right. Uh, and, well, I think another thing to look at, uh, you know, are things, uh, things like that. When we're talking about modern books outside of the items like those outlier issues, so the Batman 24 or the variant covers. The other thing that may make sense depending on what the items are or is, is to put together a run, right? If it's a special event that has some sort of major outcome, or maybe it has good press release on it, um, you know, maybe there's, I don't know, nothing too current from the Marvel side that I can think of, but, you know, some past things like Deadpool kills the Marvel Universe from a few years back, you know, items like that, or even, uh, even that vision set. Things where you can package the entire set. It's a finite series. It's done. Um, those types of things, especially if they're well-received, tend to do well, uh, even though they may be more of a modern book. And I think that that's because there's multiple factors going for it. Obviously, Deadpool characterization and things like that. But when you're talking about piecing out one issue here or there with modern books, it just gets really difficult. Well, the, and the other thing, and this is the one of the few areas where I think we actually had this come up in the store earlier today where I believe that Amazon is going to, as a distributor, stay behind uh, comic book stores because you, it's hard to justify paying $3.99 an issue for a book that came out right. today. Generally, the comic sales on Amazon are 
through third-party sellers. They're not distributed by Amazon. You're not getting your prime shipping on an issue of Batman that came out this week. So those are through third-party sellers, and usually they don't sell very well because you're essentially paying twice the cover price or more if it's a $2.99 book to get that book. So there's sense of urgency, but it it only goes so far. And I think for new books, people are certainly not willing to, um, I, I guess, pay twice the cover price to get a book. eBay factors into that a lot too. One of the big things with eBay that you see are, if it's, again, if shipping is going to be, let's say that you can get it the stripped down to the cheapest first class shipping for a book, it's still going to be like $3. So if it's a book that came out that week, even if you sell it, if it's a $4 book and you sell it at cost, and in, let's say that you get 50% on it and your cost is $2, so now you're selling it bare minimum for $5, and that's you not making any money on the shipping or on the actual item that you're selling, it's still costing someone $2 more than the cover price to get that book, and they're still not going to get it the Wednesday that it comes out. Right. I I just think that the the comic market uh, is is kind of insulated against that type of online distribution. We talked about this at length in a past episode with, um, I guess, services like DCBS, where you wait till the end of the month to get your books. Um, I think that's a, again the biggest issue is no sense of urgency or a sense of urgency with with books where. With um, online sellers, it's a lot easier to sell older books than it is newer books. Right. Not to beat a dead horse. Right. Yeah, so I think that kind of covers the main crux of the question. Uh, the reason that we're seeing prices lower or less amount of sales in many cases is because that book isn't anything too special uh, or there's a glut of them on a shelf. And on top of that, there is another alternative marketplace that meets the demand day of, right? The store. So except for those outliers, quick sells, tiered variants, um, you know, image or other publishers outside of those we're not expecting, at least you and I, from an eBay perspective, we're not really expecting to make a big splash of sales with current books uh, on eBay. Now, another thing I, with regard to eBay sales that uh, I don't know if a lot, I, I don't hear people talk about this a lot, but talking about how many sellers there are on eBay, this is kind of a sales problem that comes up when you have a lot of distributors, it becomes a race to the bottom where you have stores that might put something on. If, if they have 20 subscribers and they order 30 copies of the book and they only sell two on Wednesday or that first week, that's a pretty good gauge that that, that they're probably going to, they might sell one or two more copies, but they're probably going to be sitting on eight copies of that book that are going to go on their shelf. So what are they going to want to do? They're going to want to have total sell through of the product. So they're going to put that, they've already made their money. They hit their profit margin with their subscribers alone. So they're going to take those books and they're going to put them on eBay. At this point, if they sell them at cost or even below cost, it doesn't really matter because you've already hit your profit margin. And it's better to only make a dollar off of the book than to have it depreciate on your shelf and never sell. Now, if you extrapolate that over, as she pointed out in in the question, 3,000 comic stores or you know, obviously there's not going to be that many putting a single issue on, but let's say that you have 200 stores that are trying to get rid of their leftover stock and they're selling it for $2. And then the other guys, the next guy that puts it on eBay, puts it on for one ninety, And finally a guy is selling it for a dollar. It's a race to the bottom uh, to kind of devaluate those books so that you're going to outsell the other guys. So you kind of create, um, a, a much different price on eBay than you than the same store would sell that book for in their store. They don't want to devalue the book in the store. To, to them in the store, it's still a $3.99 book. If somebody were to come in and pick it up off the shelf, they're going to sell it for $3.99. Plus, if they're selling that book for $1.50 in the store the week after it came out and a subscriber hasn't picked it up and they come in and you're selling it on the shelf for $1.50, but it's in their bin for $3.99, they're going to say, what gives? So you kind of create two marketplaces. You have your eBay marketplace where you're, it's, you have a race to the bottom to move this extra product. And you have your store marketplace. And, and never the twain shall meet if you run a good store. So I think that that's a big part of that, that race to the bottom uh, 
pricing on eBay. And that's why you don't see that reflected in a store. That's just a, another little thing that um, keeps eBay prices low. But I, I think that, I don't know if that would necessarily, if you're going to ever look at a, uh, a price on eBay for a book that came out two weeks ago and go into a store and have that same store sell it to you in the store for that amount. And I think that's a, stores are going to keep that going because they can't devalue their product. Right, right. Uh, now, I guess without getting too far behind the curtain, let's take a, talk a little bit about the stuff we do on eBay. Where in some cases we have customers that come to us and say, I would like X variant of a book. Say it's a 1 in 200, and we'd normally get 50 of that book. Now it's 150 extra copies, and we're not going to plan to sell through those in the shop because mm -hmm. the buyers aren't there. Otherwise, we would have bought 200 copies of the book. So uh, now that we have 150 extras of this title, uh doesn't happen very often for us, but it does once in a while, and that's when we can kind of leverage eBay to help us a little bit, like what you said before. Um, let's just get that stock out. It's better to take a little loss off cover price than it is, um, you know, to, to sell it at full. So what we'll end up doing is putting it in a lot on eBay. And again, it's not even a loss. All it is is a loss off of what your projected revenue of 100% sell-through would be, but you're not going to get that anyways. Right, right. The cover price, right. And it's it's not it's not a loss in the sense that you're losing money on the deal because your subscriber has already paid for the overage on that tier, but you're not making the full dollar amount. Correct, correct. But yeah, that's that's yeah, it's something we've done from time to time, and that's something where um, you can. And this is a, a actually a great way to do it. Where if you're gonna if you're gonna have some an instance like that, let's say that we have 150 extra copies, like you're saying, if you pre if you know that and you pre sell them a month early, now eBay will pull pre-sale listings that have more than 30 days to ship. So if you're saying we'll ship this in two months, if their um, algorithm or whatever person they have going through listings sees that, they're going to flag and they're going to pull that listing. But you can still pre-sell books up to one month in advance. So if you know that you're going to have 150 extra copies of Venom 6 that will never, ever, ever sell out of your store. It's in your best interest to pre-sell, try to pre-sell those. But if you can pre if you have those paid for already and you can pre-sell them in blocks of 50 at $1.50 an issue, a lot of times we've had other comic book stores buy those lots from us because they're cheaper than getting them through whatever their normal discount tier would be. Right. And then the, the, all they have to do is tell the, tell their buyers or their customers, subscribers that their books, the venom is going to come in on Friday. It's not a practice that I would do, but that's one of the ways that we, that we sell a lot of that bulk stuff is by putting it is doing a presale on it. Right. Um, and, and that's, I have no problem doing that. It just, it means that we turn the product over immediately when we get it. But it is it is another instance where, you know, technically, if you want to argue it, we're undervaluing our, our or devaluing our own product. But at the same time, uh, you know, I don't think we have any customer that would want to come in and buy 50 copies of Venom at $1.50. You know, so that's sort of the, the catch is that we'll be happy to sell you 50 copies, but or we'll sell it to you for $1.50, but you have to buy a lot of 50 of them. Right. Like you said, that $1.50 is not being offered in the store. That's eBay only in its own entity mm -hmm. on the side and our shop on the other. Now, the other thing with eBay, though, is we don't take... we To the contrary of a lot of places that has to turn stuff over immediately, we do not put our best stuff on eBay. Our best stuff is all in the store. eBay to us is kind of like... Um, it's the Indian approach where you use every part of the buffalo and you have that stuff that kind of, I don't want to say junk, but you have that stuff that sits, if you do a proper rotation in your store, it sits for six months, six, sits for a year, and you know that it's never going to sell off of your shelves. You've taken it to shows, you try selling it on eBay. If it's a run of Squadron Supreme from a year and a half ago, you're probably not going to have anyone coming in paying three ninety nine for it. So in that instance, bundle it as a set of 12 issues or whatever it is and try to get 10 bucks for it. 
you know, because otherwise it's going to go in a dollar bin. And if it doesn't sell out of there, it's going to go in a two for a dollar bin. And then it's going to go to a four for a dollar bin. But it's another case of a race to the bottom on eBay. eBay is kind of a, a dichotomy because you have the race to the bottom stuff. But then you also have the super hot stuff that's going to hit the, the top uh, high price on eBay because of that sense of urgency. So I don't tend to see a lot of middle ground on comic selling on eBay. You know, everything's sort of like if you're selling a trade on eBay, you're trying to undercut Amazon, which means if it's 15 on Amazon with free prime shipping, now you're trying to sell it for $11 with three ninety nine shipping to under undercut them by a penny, you know? So you don't really get like a middle ground where you can just go on there and get a lot of fair prices. It's either like race to the bottom stuff or you're paying the, whatever the hot new price for Batman 24 is. Right. And, and I think there's something to be said about that. You know, like you just talked about that proper stock rotation um, we keep our best stuff in the store, and that's that's part of what we've talked about on previous episodes. You and I talk about it all the time. Our goal has always been to be the destination, and you're not going to be a destination if your best stuff is sitting in the back room with the lights out. True. Very true. So uh, with that, do you have anything else you want to add to the answer to the original question? Um. Yeah, a little bit. I just want to go over. I want to make sure if Julie from VIP Comics is listening that we that we do hit all of her points. Um, now, she, when she says that uh, we went over the kind of analyzing the demand and how many people are buying a certain item versus how many diamond accounts there are and whatnot. The the other thing to remember is that. Just because there are more than 3,000 comic stores that sold a certain amount of issues and then a certain amount of those issues sold on eBay, it doesn't mean that that those are stores selling them. Those could very easily be customers that bought the book and read it and now are selling it. And maybe that's the way that they pay for their comics is they read it and then they try to sell it and get a little bit of money back versus bagging and boarding them and throwing them in a box. Everybody does something a little bit different. There are people that are just comic readers and not collectors. They do exist, and they do not always just buy trades. So maybe that's one reason why you get a lot of those books that show up a day, two days, a week after the books go on sale because somebody read them, and now they want to sell them. Um, I think that to address her, her kind of last point, where she says this is why prices are too low and things don't sell most of the time, which is because the totality of comic sellers on eBay are fighting for fewer customers than a local comic shop. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think it's that the the sellers on eBay are in a race to put the lowest price up for that for that type of product. Also, you got to remember that there aren't people that you might be selling that a book for the, the cheapest price on eBay, but it doesn't mean somebody's looking for that book. If I'm selling issue 50 of Transmetropolitan and I'm selling it for $244 with $299 shipping, I might not have anyone that goes on eBay to look for Transmetropolitan 54 for three months. But that doesn't mean that when somebody does look, they'll buy it. You know, maybe they'll find one from somebody who's geographically closer and they'll get it a day sooner or someone who's got, um, I don't know, more feedback or who knows what, you know, it's trying to decipher eBay buyers is, um, I think that's something that will never, ever, you can, you can run all sorts of tests and analyze it. I don't think you'll ever figure it out completely. Um, the only other thing that I would say with, with eBay is, Selling, like we said before, selling things as a set is almost always going to be better than selling an individual issue because people, even if you say that I will combine shipping on something, people still see that, um, you know, 99 cent issue plus 399 shipping and they don't even care if you're going to combine shipping because they don't want to deal with it. So if you try to sell some or you run the risk too, if you've got a 12 issue run of the vision. And you put each issue up for $0.99, cents, but Freddie only needs issue four, so he buys number four for $0.99, cents, 
The next person coming along who wants to buy the run can get 1, 2, 3, and then 5 through 12. And they're not going to buy any of it because they can't get that one issue. They're just going to find the whole thing somewhere else. For sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's and that's why selling – if you sell something as a set, you might be making – you're making less than if you would sell them individually, but you're making someone buy all of them if it sells. And so at the end of the day, I would say total sell-through, whether you're just a hobbyist trying to make a little extra money uh, versus a store, total sell-through is always, always paramount, and that's what I would always go – for on ebay right right excellent all right so thank you julie and thank you drew and kyle for shooting this over to us you know what james um you know what james since we're on the topic of ebay do you mind if we take this discussion a little different and keep going down the ebay train let's do it all right um so for almost two years now we've grown the ebay presence we've ramped it up the store prior to us uh taking over did have an ebay presence it was relatively small uh, they sold just a few side things, and you know we've we've sold pretty much. Uh, well, and it and it took a little while to get rid of the negative feedback too. On some, I mean, yeah, there, yeah, I mean there were a couple of negative feedbacks that weren't our doing, and it's you know everybody's so picky, but it's definitely something. Even if it was, if it's someone who's just having a bad day and they take it out on you, you still hate seeing it, you know, and it's still. It it still makes you groan every time you go on eBay to see that somebody left that. Even an even a neutral feedback is kind of sucks. So we are happy to at least have you know 100 uh, percent during our reign of terror. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what I was going to say is there's there's been a lot that we've done on eBay. Um, we sold everything from Gene Autry comics all the way up through Adam Hughes figures and everything in between. So. Um, so what I was going to say was mm-hmm. maybe let's take a little bit of a look at what types of things seem to sell the best for us. Maybe we can then kind of dovetail down into what's been a surprise uh, and then maybe what we can end on if we've got some tips or tricks that uh, we can give to listeners uh, if they're trying to get an eBay store up and running of their own. I Well, you know, I don't think that we have the data to really – to say what is a surprising seller on eBay because the stuff that we sell on eBay is stuff that doesn't sell out of the store. So we're not, we have, we have no data to compare, to compare it to. If we were taking all of the stuff that we had on the store and offering that online, I'm sure we'd be able to come up with some surprises, but. Uh, Well, maybe I should have rephrased that or, or said a little differently. Um, what I meant to say was there are things we sold online that maybe sold and let's say this, we do a mix. So some of the things we put on buy now, some things we put up for bids. Some of the things we put up for bids are things that we don't know where they're going to land. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but there have been some things that impressed us. I've got an answer for you. Yeah, things that went a little higher than we were expecting. Yeah, I've got an answer for you now. Um, we did. We did a... For about two months, we were running auctions of Golden Age books. Every We would start them on a Friday, and, and, and they would then end on a Friday. And we started every item at $0.99. Cents. And these were kind of, uh, of off-brand Golden Age books, a lot of Dell and Gold Key, Roy Rogers, Lone Ranger, um, stuff like uh, Adventures of Jerry Lewis. The Kilroys, Bugsy, things like that, things that would that we just know would, and we had them, we had them out in the store, um, but they never sold, and we knew that they wouldn't sell, and we took them to some shows, and they didn't really move there. So I said, well, let's start putting on, you know, seventy, seventy-five, or eighty of these every Friday, and we'll kind of keep this momentum going and bring in a little bit of Golden Age money, and. What I found was that we tended to, with those auctions, we would tend to bring in an average of about a thousand a week, but the prices were so, I mean, they were all over the board for a lot of these things because as a lot of people that that look at or buy Golden Age books or sell Golden Age books know, um, Golden Age books, if it's Superman or Batman 
or Captain America, you kind of have a pretty good idea where, what a price point is at on it. And the idea that every single book sold sets a new precedent isn't exactly true. If you look at Heritage, you can... It's true in some in some instances. If you have a Captain America 1, if you have a Detective 27 or an Action, you're, you're probably, if you wait two years to sell it, you're going to make more money. I, I mean, there is... Yeah. You probably will never lose money on something like that. It probably will only appreciate... But just a random issue, a Detective 42 or something, or 40, well, not 42, but Detective somewhere in the 40s, whatever, just pick a random detective. The idea that every time you sell, it's going to set a precedent is probably not true. And um, there are pretty good price guides for those things because those are the books that, and the characters that are in very high demand and people are very aware of the sales. The things that they aren't, that there aren't necessarily as uh, hard and fast a price guide for, even though you can look at Overstreet and you can look at eBay and you can look at Heritage and Comic Link and try to get an idea of what some of these books are going for. More realistically, a lot of the more um, more unknown series don't have the the value is kind of determined by who's looking for it at the time and how how, how much they're willing to pay for it. There are always going to be people that are looking for that early action or detective that you put up. There are not always people that are going to be looking for a random issue of Bugsy. So you, the prices are so all over the board. Uh, to tie this back into our listings, we would have a lot of issues that would end at $0.99. Cents. And that was always kind of a, a heartbreaker. But at the same time, we had the best example of this, we had an issue of the Kilroys which was a a golden age, late golden age book um, that nine, I think the nine two overstreet price for it was like $50 or $48 or something. It was a later issue, not a key by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think there were even any keys in that entire run. Um, And this is maybe a three O on a good day. It ended up going for like 80 some dollars. We had a huge fight over it and it was just mind blowing that, that book would go for that much. If somebody had offered, I mean, I think we had, we had like $10 on it at a show or something and somebody could have bought that. But what happened was I I talked to another golden age dealer and he said, you had, he said, you just hit it on the sweet spot. There probably hadn't been any copies of that issue listed for six months or a year. And sure enough, we couldn't find any sales data for it. And he said, you, you caught, you know, the three or four guys that were looking for that issue and they got into a crazy bidding war. So they drove that book in a low grade up twice as much uh, what the 9-2 Overstreet Guide was. Uh, guide price, I should say. So you can get really, really cool things like that that happen. You can also get the things, like I said, that, that are real heartbreakers where you think you're going to make 20 or $30 and it never goes above the $0.99 cent price. Um that's so that that's something auction wise that really surprised me were some of those golden age and early silver age um westerns romance um sci-fi books that you don't expect to go for much because they don't guide for very much but man if you can get the right people and you can find a book that hasn't been offered for a while uh you can make a real killing yeah and i think one of the things that really played into our strength there uh, while that was happening, was not that there was just you know the the four to six weeks of continuous flow, um, but it was a healthy chunk each time. And what we ended up seeing a lot was that usually with each set of releases, uh, we'd end up having two or three bidders that would win probably eighty ninety percent of the auctions that were out there. Some of these guys would get anywhere from five to fifteen books that we had put up, and I, I think that really played into the success of what we did with those, just because you've got that captive audience right. They're already looking for a smaller segment of the of the marketplace, um, which is golden age. So uh, when you're not going to have as many books out there just due to scarcity, and you top it off, most of the books we had were niche. They weren't superheroes. Um, you know, things like Kilroy's, Crime Does Not Pay, Mr. District Attorney, things like that. Uh, you have those pocket-type books, and so we put them all together, and running those lots at the same time made the most sense. It, it helped pull in the audience to us. Right, They saw everything we had for that title. It was right there. They were able to go for it and, in their mind, probably save money on shipping, Right, which is you know makes sense. And it just seemed to work out really well as a whole. 
Uh, like you said, if you take each book, there's probably two-thirds of heartbreak, one-third of, of success. So on the whole, it made for a really successful top-to-bottom when you average the price out of everything. Yeah, we had um, the ones that really killed me where we had a couple uh, a couple airbrushed Schomburg covers, and they were just gorgeous books, and they guided at like 300, and they ended up going for like 90. But then, on the other hand, we had... We had a Flash and a Wonder Woman and a couple other books that sold for about three times guide. So they they leveled out. You know, they they completely evened out in the end. Um, and we were we were very happy with the performance of those books. The other thing that we did, which I think anybody that auctions on eBay probably does this anyways, but uh, it's a tip if you don't. We would, as we said, we would start them all on Friday and we would end them a week later on the next Friday. But we would schedule, pay the 10 cents to schedule them and schedule the ones that you're, the new ones that you're listing to start an hour before the ones that you have active end. And that way, the people that are watching your auctions all of a sudden see this other stuff. So when they get caught up in a bidding war or bidding on the 99 cent books, whatever it is, they're already on to your next. It's hard to get people back just to look at your stuff once once they've stopped watching what you have, if you can catch them and kind of transfer their their interest in your in your product every week, you know, week to week, you can really, like you said, you can keep a captive audience. And that's what we did. We would see 15, 20 minutes before the stuff from last week would end, all of our new listings would already have a bunch of watchers and a bunch of views. And so we would just keep these same people coming back until we eventually just kind of ran out of these golden age books to even list, which is a great problem to have. (laughs) Yeah. So that was one of our big successes. Um, Though we sell all kinds of stuff on our eBay page. And like you said, it's stuff we've tried to sell out in the shop and it just doesn't go in here. We've taken it to a show most likely. Um, there are other things that stick out in your mind as mm-hmm. as these items work really well for us to put online versus sell in the shop. Yeah, again, you can't put – you have to know who your competition is. And if you're selling online, your competition uh, primarily starts with an A, and it's going to be very, very hard to compete with them. So items like Settlers of Catan, Catan, whatever well, – I don't know. Uh, that's going to be a tough one to sell online because you, and not only do you, not only are you competing with Amazon, but you're competing with Target, you're competing with Walmart, you're competing with everybody else that's able to offer it at a price break that you're not able to offer because you are one store or two or three stores and they are the single largest volume dealer in the world, unless it's still Alibaba. I don't know. But that being said, just like we say in the store trying to compete with larger chains or um, Target or Walmart offer the things that they can't offer. So we might have out-of-print games that we try to sell in in the shop. And if they don't sell in the shop for six months, we'll put them on eBay. You cannot walk into um, Target or Walmart and buy Illuminati. You can't buy that. But we sold our copy on eBay for like 275 bucks, the Steve Jackson Illuminati game. So again, it's putting the items out there that you can't get anywhere else that you, that people are going to go to eBay to look for the, those collectibles. If you're just trying to sell new trades or board games or action figures, you're going to have to undercut whoever is the, whoever is the, the lowest price. And it just becomes another race to the bottom if you can sell collectibles that you can't really get anywhere else, then you know you want to have the same business model on eBay, at least as far as that type of product that you have in the store, which is offer offer unique items. Yeah, and I think you know I I guess that's that's something we should point out. Um, I'm not going to say that we necessarily have a competitive advantage. Uh, but we do have somewhat of a bit of an advantage in the sense that we can test run things in the store for six months, 12 months, uh, and find out this just doesn't sell here, and then we can move it to eBay and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So people who are just doing eBay sales, um, you don't have you don't have a store to fall back on to put things into or start new lines. So that, I guess, I mean, and it, it's an advantage where we can get 
um, where we have a good proving ground and we've got the, okay, it didn't work like we thought it would. Let's get a different product line. Well, eBay doesn't. And move this one out in the instance. Uh, oh, go ahead. Finish. Oh, I was just going to say, in some instances, uh, there's a, a product that's a premium product that, you know, maybe it maybe fits our market, our demographic, what we like to sell. But in our store, it sits for a year and a half. But we're only going to take a premium price due to what it is. Uh, then sometimes I think we'll think about what are the other opportunities we have to move it, um, like eBay. But that's pretty few and far between. But if you're if you're exclusively an eBay seller, what you don't have is not now. You say in, in a store that we have kind of a, a testing ground for people to come in, but more than anything, you don't have that. And this this is going back to the joke that Best Buy is just Amazon showroom. You don't have that tactile contact that people want. They want to, if they pick something up and they're holding it in their hands and it's something that they're interested in, they're a hell of a lot more likely to, to buy it there when they can take it home with them than to go home and look for it online. If you can, if you can close that sale, you have a huge advantage that somebody on eBay doesn't have because they're looking at, if they type in whatever the product that they're looking for, they're going to have any you know 200 results come up. You might have one copy in your store, and if someone's interested, it's a lot easier to, to give them that little nudge to push it than it is on eBay to stand out in a huge crowd and get someone to notice your auction or your listing or whatever it is. So there is a, a big difference, and that's another reason why we sell. Now, it's not just that we've decided to. Now, we sell new games at SRP because we buy them at a very set margin from our distributors. Um, it works in the store because if you come in you're, and you're looking at games, you're probably looking for a game to take home with you. Um, if you're if you're looking on eBay, you sort of have the advantage that it's not not as urgent. You know that if it's a Saturday and you're having people over and you're looking at board games on eBay, you're not going to get it that night. You know you're. So you have a little bit of an advantage in the store in that in that people are shopping in the moment. And you have to find some way to make your people on eBay tend to you see a lot of branding that people have where they'll have um maybe some guy gets his uh gorgeous girlfriend to hold every item in the picture. Or maybe somebody has a, a cool um, I don't know, template that they put on their picture where it looks like there's I don't know, stars in the background or something. There's cool branding like that that people use to stand out. I don't know if it actually works, but if everybody else's picture is just that an item on a table and your picture looks like um, some car booth babe is holding it, maybe that sells your, your item faster. I don't know. But we don't necessarily have to rely on that, although, Eric, you in a bikini, you might sell something yeah. out of the store. I, I don't know if that's the right thing. That's true. That's true. But, yeah, it's you have to kind of – I don't want to say resort to gimmicks – but if you're if you're trying to play on a level playing field on eBay, you have to set yourself aside somehow because it, it you don't have that benefit of people shopping in the moment. No, I I agree. I think that's exactly right. Uh, you hit on something there when it comes to selling on eBay. Uh, basically, at that point, because there is no tactile experience, your listing is everything, right? So it has to be it has to articulate things well has to explain what the product is, uh, and, and importantly, most importantly in my my opinion, you have to have good pictures when you're selling collectibles. If you don't have comprehensive pictures of whatever it is you're selling, buyers are going to shy away, right? So in cases of comic books, especially specific key or golden age books that are in better shape, the buyers are going to want to see things like, show me the corners, show me the spine, are the pages white or off-white? Um, so you're going to have to put in time and effort. Other things, uh, like if, if you're selling loose figures or build-a-figure parts, things like that, make sure you can show in pictures well what those pieces are and articulate in the actual description what's going on. I, I mean, to me, uh, those are some of the most important things to have, but probably chief among them, even more important than the pictures at first, is what the listing title is. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, 
James, you're kind of the, the listing title wizard at the shop for our stuff. So what's your formula that you use when you're creating a listing? Is there anything specific or do you just kind of look at what else is selling in similar condition and shape them after those that are for sale? No, there's no, there's a, I don't want to say that there's a, a formula to it, but, and I, and do bear in mind, if you look at our listings that I don't make we have someone who specifically does it but when i do make the listings so the really good ones i did those <laughs> i'm just kidding but i probably did um well you just you have to put you have to put um I, i've got a kind of a good uh a good example uh or i guess a good story that is essentially the same thing my old roommate and i when we used to drive around this is like 10 years ago we used to drive around to rummage sales and we would spend we, because I made our schedule at work, we would have Thursday and Fridays mornings off. So we'd go and we'd rummage and we'd buy comics and whatever cool stuff we found. And my roommate didn't under, really understand the concept of finding rummage sales. And I'd have a, a strategy mapped out, you know, from the night before, and I'd have things plugged into my GPS and um, know exactly where we're going. And we'd be we'd alternate driving. And uh, when we first started doing this. When he would, the first time he drove, he would randomly turn down into subdivisions and cul-de-sacs. And I'd say, Joe, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm seeing if there's any rummages. And I said, Joe, they want you to find, there's, they're not like, it's not a, a scavenger hunt to find the rummage with the good stuff. Like they want you to find the rummages. They're going to put signs up. But he, he just didn't grasp that. And he would turn down random roads to find rummage sales. And eBay is sort of, there are a lot of people on eBay that are like Joe, where they put a listing of Captain America comics for sale. That that might get people to click on it, thinking that you might have some Golden Age stuff that you don't and you don't know what it is. But by and large, people aren't going to be turning down those subdivision roads that are unmarked. You know, they're going to want to go to the clearly marked uh, listings with. Um, a description of what the condition is, maybe what the year is. If it's, uh, God knows, if you're selling New Avengers, a run of New Avengers, uh, you might want to say what volume and what year it was. Um, again, what the condition is. Is is um, Todd McFarlane, did he do the art? Maybe you want to put McFarlane in there. What can you do? Think of your, your listing as that rummage sign. You want to flag people. You want to get their attention. What can you do to... Make your listing stand out from everybody else's. I know if I saw a listing that a car model had where she was holding a Spawn comic and the listing just said lot of Spawn books and somebody else said lot of Spawn issue this, 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 um, near mint to very fine, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to click on the detailed one first if I'm seeking something out specifically because it's going to if, if it has what I'm looking for in the title, I'm going to go to it. Also... If people are, and this sounds kind of ridiculous, but you might say, maybe you're selling a very fine and someone has to have a near mint. Well, you're kind of saving, if you put that it's a very fine or a fine, you're saving yourself a headache. If they click on your listing and then they look at your picture and they say, well, I don't know, maybe that's a near mint. And then they get it and they, they're not happy with it and they want to do a return. Just turn them off. You know, tell them what the, you have to be very upfront and honest on eBay. I, I always go worse than what I, my descriptions are worse than what I think the item is because I like having people be pleasantly surprised. Now, if you're selling a graded book, that's a nine, eight, obviously if someone gets it and they say this book's clearly a nine, six, well, you know, now they're just blowing smoke. But, um, sometimes if you have a very good, honest listing, you can save yourself trouble with people that might be a little bit pickier. Um, but more than anything, it's just about, Separating yourself with clear, concise details so people people can jump to your listing to know exactly what it is they're getting. Yeah, exactly. We, we both have experience with eBay outside of the shop. We've each had our own eBay sales pages for years before we were running the store. Um, and I, I think you hit it right on the head. And something that we both believe in is that you want if you want to draw people into product into your product, you have to describe what it is. They can't see it up, hold, uh, up close. They can't touch it. They can't hold it. But if they, you know, if they're there, thirty words or less, understand exactly what they're seeing. You're more likely to get mm -hmm. them in. 
So if you put a great example would be the learning curve that we saw firsthand with somebody who is handling online stuff for us, where I gave them a stack of Valiant variant covers and said to list these. And when I looked at what the eBay listing was, the title was Lot of Valiant Variant Covers. And I said, no, no, no. I said, you got to list that this is Bloodshot Reborn, issue three. One in 50, one in 20, one in 10 variant cover set. And then Jeff Lemire at the end, because he had enough characters to put Lemire's name in there because he's a writer that sells books. So if somebody's looking for his work, but maybe not necessarily Bloodshot, they're going to they're gonna pull up your Bloodshot listing. Um they might not click on it, but they're going to see it, and that maybe will get them get them thinking about, um, you know, maybe he does. He's not just the guy that writes Moon Knight. Well, wrote Moon Knight, I guess. Um, but yeah, you put as much de- information in there that's going to pick up that's going to pick up as many different people as possible. Again, if you put, um, you know, a lot of Marvel trades, you're selling a big lot of Marvel trades. And you just leave it at that. You're only you're you're not going to pull in the as many people as you could. If there's a Deadpool trade in that lot, even if it's a lot of fifty trades and there's only one Deadpool trade in there, put Deadpool in there because that's going to be an attention getter. You have a lot more people that are going to search for Deadpool than are going to search for a lot of Marvel trades. So put lot of Marvel trades, Deadpool, Harley Quinn. If it's DC. Um, you know, a lot of image trades, Spawn, Walking Dead, Revival. Sprinkle as many keywords into the title as you can to reach the maximum amount of people that are searching, even if they're searching for something completely different. If someone's searching for Walking Dead hats, if they're not just searching strictly in apparel, they're going to pull up your listing of image comic trade lot Walking Dead. They might not buy it, but, who you know, it, it it's reaching someone that you wouldn't have otherwise reached. And maybe you will have that one person that will click on it and be interested enough to purchase it. But you can't just rely on people that, that to, to just seek your item out. You know, you have to try to catch people. It's, it's really the closest thing that eBay has to that um, shopping in the now experience in a, in a physical location where they might be looking for something else, but then they stumble upon your item you know it's it's the closest you can get to that yeah sounds good uh well uh, do you have any other ebay thoughts or any other wisdom that you want to impart uh on the listeners today um not really people can always hit us up with questions if they have them and we'll be more than happy to to answer them um but i think we've I think we've hit everything that was in the question and more. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, how about any other updates, news items that you want to uh, you want to hit on before we sign off? Um, not really. I think uh, I do have an idea that I want that I'm going to run by you for the next episode that may or may not involve a follow up to a past podcast about grading and grading companies. I think you know what that's about. Uh-huh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I, I've got good news for you. I also have a potential topic for another episode that I got in about an hour ago from someone with a question about variant tiers. Ooh. Oh, oh, and let's do um, a shameless plug for Mr. Clint Stout. Yes, absolutely. Let's do it. Go ahead. Um, about, what, now, a week, two weeks ago? Um, where I am sitting right now in my sunroom at my house, uh, I had Clint over and we recorded, um, the second ep. well, really the first episode, Clint had sort of, uh, I guess we could call it the zero episode of his, his podcast, which is comics that work. And the gist of this podcast is, uh, Clint is a guy who's, who wants to be a comic writer. He's been writing for a while now. He's been uh, featured on our podcast a couple of times uh, when we went to C2E2. But the concept for his podcast is he's going to have a different person on. We promise it's not just going to be, you won't have to just listen to us every time. He's going to have a different person on every episode. 
and the the guest that he has on is going to pick a book. It could be a one shot. It could be just a random issue. It could be even as much as a four issue miniseries, which I think I kind of twisted his arm to do. Um, and they're just going to talk about that book and why they think it's a great book and kind of go into everything from the themes of the book, why they like the book. Um, the craft of the book is the, you know, the, do they like it because the artist has an incredible use of space? Um, do they, do they like it or love it because of the dialogue? Do they love it because, um, I don't know, it just has their favorite character or whatever. And then they just, we'll just talk about it. So, um, we chose to do, or I chose Garth Ennis's Unknown Soldier. And, uh, we, um, spent, I mean, I think two hours talking about Unknown Soldier. Unlike this podcast, though, there is a little bit of cursing. So be aware if you're listening to it around your rambunctious seven-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think one thing that I want to point out about Clint's podcast, uh, I was actually talking about it with my wife earlier today. Um, I think he's come up with a really novel concept. There, there's a lot of comic podcasts out there in the world right now. Uh, a lot of them do things like book reviews, talking about what was read, uh, and mostly you see those in the form of current issues within a week or two weeks of coming out. Um, so there's a lot of podcasts also that do interviews with creators on their own books and uh, you know talk about certain things. And what Clint is trying to do is somewhat in the same vein but very different. Um, from what he has told me, and James, you can back me up, but the whole idea here is that he wants to get into the minds of other people. And then in many cases, he'll be reaching out to creators down the road to find out what things they like and why do they like it. So that as he goes along his journey of becoming a creator himself, trying to grow in that realm, he has ideas of even what people are looking for. Um, you know, it's not to say that he's going to do exactly what you want or what I want, but the more info he has, the more mm-hmm. things he can start to pick up on, um, the more themes he can be aware of. He can start to look at stylistic changes, just stuff that he can do. Uh, and, and I think that is really brilliant as someone who's just starting out and wanting to grow. I, I agree. And the other thing is, besides exposing him to different artists that he might not otherwise be exposed to, um, he I mean, he even told me that he never would have read Unknown Soldier if we had if he didn't have to, because I made him read it for the podcast when he asked me to be on it. So and he ended up really liking the book. Or at least it seemed that way. I I don't think he, he had to be a really good liar if he was not telling the truth. Um, but he had also never heard of the artist, Killian Plunkett. Never heard of him. So me picking that book exposed him to sort of an espionage story he otherwise wouldn't have uh, ever read. And an artist that he had never heard of that he ended up enjoying their work. So um, I think it's, like you said, it's a cool concept and it... Uh, I'm I'm very excited to listen to all of the episodes that I am not on. <laughs> well, I was recently tapped to be a member uh, of his podcast, so um, you'll have to listen to me. But for those that have read Claws or want to read Claws, I'm going to stretch Clint a little bit beyond four issues. It's going to be six or seven. I can't remember. I think it's seven. Uh, something like that. But that's going to be the one that he and I do. And, uh, and he's, he's pretty inter, uh, excited to, and you're going to finally, this is finally going to get me to finish reading yeah, it too. So about dang time. Nice job. I know, I know, I know. Um, so I think too, Clint had in his first little preview, uh, that couple minute recording he put out, he did allude to the fact that this will be, like you said, James, it could be single issues, could be story arcs, could be OGNs, could be manga. So, uh, for those that kind of want a smattering of different things or enjoy hearing about different things, this could be a great opportunity to listen in. It will be a part of the CowCast family, so it's going to be hosted on our servers, but he will have his own separate feed. You can go to iTunes right now and look up Comics That Work. He has a uh, Twitter account set up for it, and if for whatever reason you want to go to the exact URL for the podcast, it's comicsthatwork.cowabungacomics.com. So with that, James, shall we wrap it up and call it a day? Let's do it! All right. We would like to thank all of you for sending in your questions, comments, thoughts. Please continue to do so. Uh, And it sounds like we've got a couple episodes uh, with some great topics that will be coming your way here over the next few weeks with some really cool discussions. So for James and myself, 
We will talk to you next time. On behalf of all of us, thank you for listening to this episode of the Cowcast. You can find us on all the main social media outlets, including Facebook at facebook.com slash Incredicow, on Twitter at Incredicow, or on Instagram at Cowabunga Comics. To send an email to us directly, send it to podcast at cowabungacomics.com, or to join in the discussion, you can hop on our new Cowabunga Comics forum at forums.cowabungacomics, that's cowabunga with a K, dot com. Thank you.